You're listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Now here's Pastor Sean. And uh, this morning we're looking at Judges chapter 9. Uh, Judges, uh, Judges chapter 9. I grew up as a kid in school saying the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag, right? Uh, how many of you grew up saying that? Some of you guys did. Is, is that still a thing in schools? It is still a thing. Okay, I wasn't sure, to be perfectly honest, with things that are not things anymore and some things that are things that I didn't know. But uh, that's, that is a, a positive thing. When, when a couple stands up and they say, I do, I don't care if they're at the beach or if they're at some city hall or some county office in front of a justice of a peace or in a church, when they pledge one another and say, I do, they are committing their lives to one another um, for, for a lifetime, to be in relationship. When we pledge allegiance, even as kids, to the flag, we're, we're pledging a commitment uh, to live according to the, the, our, our country and for the, the, the freedom and justice and for all and for all of that. I think of, do you remember Thomas after Jesus rose from the dead? Do you remember Thomas? He was the one that said, yeah, I'm not going to believe any of what you people said. Unless I see in my own two eyes the, the prints and the nails in Jesus' hand, and I'm able to put my fingers into those, and I'm able to reach and touch his side, I am not going to believe until I see that. And you guys remember the story. Jesus comes, and he's there with the, the 12 in the upper room, and he says, yo, Thomas. I mean, not, he didn't really say that, but he's like, Thomas, come. Put your fingers in here, son, and feel. Put your finger into my side. Don't be doubting, don't be disbelieving, but be believing. Do you remember what Thomas said after that? He says four simple words He said in English. He says, my Lord, my God, my Lord and my God. Now, some people who will deny the deity of Jesus, some different church groups and religious groups, will say that he was in, in essence swearing, kind of like, oh my Lord, oh my God. But you know, Jesus was a rabbi, and as a rabbi, they were responsible to take very seriously any breaking of the commandment. And anyone who was taking the name of the Lord in vain, who was saying, oh my Lord, or oh my God, would have been corrected and would have been chastised. Did Jesus ever shrink back from correcting the disciples? No. Instead, it was the exact opposite. He received it. He had just told Thomas to stop doubting and start believing. And what does Thomas say? Thomas pledges an allegiance in his heart to Jesus, and he says, in essence, you are my Lord, you are my God. I see that you are alive, and my life I surrender and I commit fully to you. I wouldn't be surprised, but what that was the first time in Thomas' life that he really fully understood and committed his life to Jesus as Lord of his life. That from that point forward, everything that he did in his life was under the authority, under the direction, under the commitment of Jesus that he claimed for him. He didn't just, if you will, not like at the altar and say, I do. When you get married, you don't make that kind of commitment. You make a serious lifelong commitment, but not that one. Thomas said, you are my God, you are my Lord, you are in charge of everything in my life. Well, this morning... As we look at Judges chapter 9, we're going to see what happens when you and I don't live with Jesus as our King, with Jesus as our Lord, 
with Jesus as our God. The book of Judges is kind of a spiraling down book. It doesn't start out very well. It starts out kind of bad, and it gets worse, and it gets worse, and it gets worse, and the very last week we're going to be in it, it's just, to be perfectly honest with you, it's gross and gruesome. It could be a Halloween, like, uh, you know, Halloween movie is just so awful and just so horrible and just just graphic and violent in the middle of it. And what God is doing, if you've been in life groups and like, seems like we keep seeing the same theme over and over again, that you know the people disobey God and they forget Him and they don't remember Him and don't follow Him. And next thing we know, they're in a mess and they're in trouble and they've got all kinds of problems. And then they kind of come to their senses, they cry out to God, God sends them a deliverer and they get it for a while. But then once he dies, or she dies, in the case of Deborah, they kind of go back to their ways. And each time, they go a little bit lower and a little bit lower. And what God is doing, guys, is he's holding the mirror up to you and to me. He's, holding, he's pointing out to us who we really are without him in our life. He's pointing out to us how messed up and how awful our life becomes when we really don't live with Jesus as king. We don't live with him as Lord of our, our life. And so the reason God is kind of showing us this over and over again is partly we don't always pay attention, right? We don't always listen. And partly he's just really showing like if there's anybody that ever could have lived a happy, productive, healthy, full life, their best life apart from me, it's not possible. It is not possible to do it without me in that picture. So turn with me, if you would, and look at Judges chapter 9. This chapter 9 is a, a different person that we're focusing on today, but it's really kind of the, the appendix. It's the, the caboose on the train of the story of Gideon that we've looked at the last couple of weeks. You guys remember Gideon as the deliverer. God raised him up, and he fought off uh, the, the, the enemies of Israel, and he stepped forward finally in faith, which, you know, we give a guy a lot of hard knocks because he didn't listen to God initially, but let's be honest, how often do we listen and trust God initially? At least he stepped forward and followed through and obeyed God, and God used him to deliver quite a, a, a victory for Israel. But he was still a little messed up because, remember, he collected all of that gold, and he said, guys, if you just, everybody just give me a little earring, and uh, I'll be good. Forty pounds of gold later, and he makes this idol. And the Bible says that it became a snare, a stumbling piece for him and his family, and that all of Israel began prostituting themselves spiritually for that idol. Now, we're going to see this morning what happens when you and I, maybe on one hand, believe in Jesus and follow him, but we do it half-heartedly. And we're going to see how when Jesus is not fully king of our life, that the next generation suffers terribly as a result of our messes. So read with me in, in Judges chapter 9, verse 1. The Bible says this, Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubal, which is another name for Gideon, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives, and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the years of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you that all seventy of the sons of Jerubal or Gideon 
rule over you or that one rule over you. Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. So here's the deal. Gideon had a lot of wives. He was a polygamist. God was not approving of that. In fact, the Bible tells us realities. Um, just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean that it's approved by God. And so Gideon was a man who was deeply messed up, married multiple women. He had 70 just sons, not even including daughters. And if it's a 50-50 ratio, you know, maybe he had 140 kids. How would you like to provide for 140 kids? Uh, I sure wouldn't. Not at all in a million years. No, thank you, sir. He had 70 kids. And one of those kids named Abimelech grew up and he thought to himself, this isn't good. Dad's dead. There's an opportunity to be had here. Nobody is stepping into the vacuum of leadership. I think I'm the man for the job. So he goes to the rest of his family and says, hey, what do you think? Is it better that we slice the pie into 70 little pieces or we just give the whole pie to one person to, to lead Israel? And so they say, ah, that sounds good. We'll make you our leader because you're our relative. Read the rest of the story. And in verse 3, And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He's our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal Barith. That was a new idol that they had, had identified after Gideon had died. And apparently, as an act of worship, all this money had been brought in. And so to fund Abimelech's campaign to be king, they gave him 70 pieces of silver, which was an enormous amount of money. And in verse 4, they gave him the 70 pieces of silver, and, uh, and with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows. People of no integrity, scoundrels people that would do anything for a buck. So he goes and hires these people. And they followed him. And in verse 5, And he went to his father's house at Ophrah, and he killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, Gideon, 70 men on one stone. You get a picture of like a sacrifice. But Jotham, the youngest son of Gideon, was left, for he hid himself, and all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and they made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. Crazy story. This guy steps into the vacuum of dad. Dad is dead and gone. Family is famous. They're wealthy. And this one son goes to the leaders of a city and in a region and says, I think I'd like to be your king. And they say, Okay, sounds good. We'll fund that campaign for you. And they give, you, they give him a ridiculous amount of money. And he hires assassins, in essence, people of just the lowest sort who would do anything for a buck, and they kill off all of the competition. All of them. And then the leaders, and he comes back, and the leaders say, Okay, I guess you are king. And they continue, and they sanction him, and they make this murderer who committed fratricide, killing of his brothers, they make him king. Crazy, crazy story. First thing I want you to recognize this morning, when you and I don't live our life with Jesus as our king, we commit ourselves to losers. We're willing to commit ourselves to losers with a capital L 
loser. What in the world were these townspeople thinking? Like they knew this guy's reputation. They should have said, are you kidding me? We're not going to let you run for office. You're not going to be president. You're not going to be mayor. Good grief. You're definitely not going to be king, and we're not about to give you any kind of money. And then if for some crazy reason they still thought he was okay, after he killed everybody, they should have said, look, dude, we made a mistake. You're going to jail. We are not following you. And instead, we see them wholesale committing their lives to him. Why would reasonable people, conscious in their life, do such a stupid thing? Have you ever sat back and wondered, how could somebody do something so dumb? You have all done that, right? You've sat back and like, how could these people have done that? The pragmatic truth is, is once in a while, we're that dumb person that, that have done the stupid thing ourselves and we realize, what in the world was I thinking? When you and I do not live our life with Jesus as king, we not only make mistakes, but we sell ourselves out to absolute losers in our life. So here's the thing. When you are not following Jesus as king, you get, you get itchy. You're, you're uncomfortable. You're, you become miserable because you don't feel quite whole. You start looking around for hope. You start looking around for something to give you security. You start fishing around for something worth living for. And when you start doing that, you start making really dumb mistakes in life because you're not whole, you're not healthy emotionally, and spiritually you're not right. And, and so you begin will, to become willing to sell yourself to somebody else thinking that they are going to be your hope. I mean, we get a picture of how desperate this city of Shechem was. They were desperate for somebody to just step up and be a leader because they themselves were not following God. They were hungry. Let me make the application this morning for there's a number of singles in the uh, crowd today. You guys are, as singles in a world around us, you have internal pressure and external pressure to be with somebody. It's palpable. You can cut it with a knife. Our culture, it is a couple's world. Everything is driven that direction. Churches even struggle to recognize singles and how do, you know, how do we uh, minister and serve well. And we do so many, so many things are just right. Am I, am I right, singles? Am I crazy? Am I right? You're too nervous to say yes. <laughs> you know I'm right. It's hard. And then you have the internal pressure because, you know, God made us for relationships. He made us to not be just complete loners. Now, there is a gift of celibacy for single, and, and, and uh, some of you may have that, but most of you don't. And you have that internal drive. So here's the deal. If you are not careful when you're in that frame of mind, and if Jesus is really not your king, you begin looking around for something else to make you whole something else to complete you, something to satisfy you, something else to live for, something else to, to somehow take care of that hunger in your heart. And what you have done is you have shifted life from Jesus is your king to something else. And when you do that, you very quickly become vulnerable to giving yourself to one of these, a loser. 
to somebody who is not following Jesus as king, and before you know it, you become emotionally hooked, you go become physically hooked, and you go down this road, and it goes a lot farther, a lot faster than you ever wanted it to be, and you end up in a mess. Well, the real problem wasn't that you just have bad taste in, in women or bad taste in men. The real problem was back before that, that you somehow in your heart were not seeking Jesus as your king, and you began looking around for other substitutes, thinking that those, that person might make you healthy or whole or might complete you or all these fanciful romantic ideas that are just absolute garbage. You, if you need somebody else to complete you, there's something really messed up with you. God made you perfect as you are. And, and as people, individuals, we need to be healthy and whole before God. And when, if we're not healthy and whole, and we go into a relationship and we expect them to make us healthy and whole, then we just submarined and sabotaged that relationship because we're expecting that other person to deliver more than they ever possibly can. And our wholeness and our happiness and our security is founded in them. And I assure you, they're going to let you down because they are not perfect. And you will put them on such a pedestal with such expectations, and the first time they begin letting you down, the time after that, you get even more miserable, and they're looking at you like, what in the world? It wasn't that big of a deal. And all the while, the problem was really not them, is that you are not looking for Jesus as your king. So I want to challenge us this morning and challenge you to evaluate, is Jesus really the one that you were seeking to serve, or is he not? And if he's not, you become highly vulnerable to give yourself to losers who will absolutely mess up your life. Now, for those of you who are in a relationship, whether you're dating or married or whatever, now guess what? You cannot shift gears and somehow make that other person your source of happiness and significance and security and joy. You're, you will submarine that relationship. Jesus has to be your king. And it, we see one example here, but this plays out in so many ways in our life. When we begin to not accept what God wants in our life, and we begin to look for substitutes, and we begin pursuing other things, whether it's people, whether it's other uh, religions, or whether it's other solutions to things in our heart and our soul, we don't realize it, but we are selling ourselves out to fool's gold and it will always backfire and blow up in our life. Second thing I want you to realize, if Jesus is not our king, when, Je when we are really not serving him fully in our life and our heart, not only do we sell ourselves to losers, but secondly, we end up following our own simple and selfish heart. We end up doing what we want to do. That's what Abimelech does. Abimelech steps up and he's like, huh, I think I want to be king. This would be cool. I'd like to do that. Were his motives corrupt? Yeah. Is ambition wrong? Not automatically, no. No. Our mo we need to check our motives with ambition. Absolutely. We ought to be ambitious for God, if you will. It should be for God and God's glory. And sometimes we'll, you know, trick ourselves. Well, I'm doing this for God. And I want to say, really? Am I really doing this for God? Because sometimes I'm not even though it looks like it. But Abimelech steps forward and out of his own selfish heart wants to be king. And he follows all of this to, and he ends up killing his own brothers. In fact, 
The picture we get out of his life is that out of his own selfishness in his heart, he was a, an idolater. As he received that money willful, willingly and gladly, in his mind, he's like, yeah, I deserve this. I'm not taking from that idol. I'm, I'm, I'm being commissioned. I'm, a, I'm an agent of, of Baal Barith, and I'm doing these people a favor. And it was a function of his religious belief system, if you will. He was was following an idol, he was a, a scoundrel, reckless, murderer, killing innocent lives, who didn't care at all about his people that he was supposed to rule over. He wasn't looking out for their best interests. He was looking out for number one. You see, when you and I stop living our lives with Jesus as our king, we subtly or not so subtly become king to ourselves. And we start doing whatever we want to do, however we want to do it, the way we want to do it. Oh, you're going to follow a king one way or the other. It's either going to be yourself, it's going to be somebody else, or it's going to be God himself. And when you and I start following our own selfish desires, we start making a mess in our life. The very last verse in, in Judges, chapter 21 it is, this kind of sums up the verse. We've been seeing regularly, you know, that they forgot God, they, they didn't remember God, and they did evil again in the sight of the Lord. We've been seeing that kind of phrase all the time. But the very last verse in Judges 21 says this, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes did what he or she thought was was right and was appropriate and the murder and the mayhem that came as a result of that now folks i want you and i to realize when we become selfish in that vein when we become self-centered in, in that way we will do things that we did not previously think were possible. This man, this man ended up killing 70 of his brothers. Many of their moms were alive. His half-sisters were alive. Families were alive. Think about the carnage and destruction out of his how does a person morally rationalize something like that? That's, that's crazy, right? That's a serial killer all at once, all at, at one time. You see, your selfishness and my selfishness will lead us to all kinds of things that we will do wrong. Look what James chapter 3 says. It'll be on the screen, or you can turn there, New Testament. James chapter 3. The Bible says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Verse 14, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is 
earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. James tells us that if we have jealousy and selfish ambition in our hearts, that we don't follow wisdom that comes from God. We follow our own wisdom. And it's demonically supercharged. And out of that will be all kinds of vile practice and disorder in our lives. That's not a maybe. That's not a threat. That's a reality. You see, when you and I allow selfishness in our heart, it is going to come out in a really messed up bad way. And it came out and it led Abimelech to the point of murder. And murdering his innocent innocent brothers. I want to challenge you that when you allow selfishness in your heart, it will lead you to either character assassination, criticism, attack, or it will lead you to do even beyond those things. Sean, what are you talking about? Did you know in the U.S. that in a given year, I think 2017, there were almost 900,000 abortions that were committed. 900,000. It's a lot. It's a lot. A lot of people. In New York State alone, one-third of all pregnancies end up in abortion. Now, that's according to the Guttmacher Institute. They, this, is not a, uh, this institute was originally started as a part of Planned Parenthood. And I think in 2004, 2007, somewhere around there, they separated and they're two separate entities. I say that to say this. So these are not, these are not inflated. These are, not, these are actually figures from people who support abortion, okay? Um, and and, and want to see that as a positive, viable way of life. And, um, and that takes my breath away. It really does. How, how is that possible? Same institute, Guttmacher, did a study a number of years ago, and they asked, they asked women, you know, what's the primary reason why you're pursuing an abortion? And when you look at the figures, I actually have them on the slide if you can find it there, guys. There's a table there. But when you look at the figures, more than 50% were basically for a reason of, of a lifestyle or convenience. So 25% of the women, when they did their poll, and again, this is Guttmacher. This is, this is, these are pro-abortion people asking. These are not people who are against it. 25% of the women said, well, I'm not ready for a child. 23 said, I can't afford a baby. 19%, I'm, I'm just done having kids. I've, I've had my kids, I'm done. 8% said, I want to be a single mom. 7 said, I'm, I'm not mature enough to raise a child. 4% said, yeah, this, this kid's going to get in the way of my education and my career. So if you leave off the can't afford a baby, so let's take that at face value, okay? You're, you're absolutely broke and poor and can't afford a kid. 25% not ready for a child, that's convenience, lifestyle kind of decision. None of us are ready to have a kid. <laughs> I had seven kids and I wasn't ready for my eighth. <laughs> just, and honestly, I couldn't afford any of them. And I just, <laughs> God just does it. But, but, but seriously, not ready done having kids, don't want to be a single mom, 
not mature enough, it would interfere with education or career. Bottom line, all of those together are more than 50%, and they all say this, it's a lifestyle choice and convenience. I think there's a little selfishness going on in there. And they can't afford a baby, okay, you know, we could add that in the mix. Uh, you, you add all of that in there, 85% of it has nothing to do with the top one victim of rape, nothing to do with health issues. Overwhelming, staggering percentage. Um, I, I'm touching a difficult subject this morning, and because of it, it's gonna hit everybody so completely different. Some of you this morning think abortion's completely okay. I wanna challenge you on that belief. Some of you don't think it's okay and are fine with it, and maybe even judgmental about those who have had abortion. And I don't think that's good either. Some of you have had abortions, or your girlfriend or your wife have had them, and you've encouraged it, and you're struggling with the, with the shame and the, the guilt and all of that, and I wanna help you with that too. But to, to touch the first subject, um, my undergraduate degree was wildlife management, so I was wildlife management policy and biology and ecology and all of that. Are you, you've heard of the carnivore blue butterfly, right? In the pine bush? They're an endangered species, okay? For, for the U.S., an endangered species means they're, they're deeply protected. It's a federal law. It is not a, a, a state law. In fact, if you harm a carnivore blue butterfly and intentionally harm it, you could get a $50,000 fine and go to jail for a year. It's a really big deal because it's an endangered species, okay? And, and the, the legal definition, go to the slide, I think it's just before this one, the legal definition uh, is under 19, under the U.S. Code, Section 1532, is you would be taking them, which means to harass, harm, pursue, hunt, shoot, wound, kill, trap, catch, or collect, or attempt to engage in any such content. And if you were convicted of that, you would be in deep water, okay? Did you know? Carnivore blue butterflies lay eggs two times a year. They lay, lay them, and uh, on the lupin, the pretty blue lupin, you ought to go in the pine bush in May. They're just absolutely stunning when they're, when they're out. Did you know that those eggs are protected under those exact same laws? Look at the definition under number eight. The term fish and wildlife means any member of the animal kingdom, kingdom including, without limitation, which is a huge phrase, any mammal, fish, bird, amphibian, reptile, mollusk, crustacean, arthropod, or other invertebrate, think insects, that kind of stuff, and includes, there's other stuff in there too, but eggs. You realize that if you destroy an egg case of an unborn carnivore blue butterfly, you could also face a $50,000 fine and a year in jail. I find it slightly hypocritical to live in a country and a state where we would value an unborn butterfly more than we would an unborn identified child. And I think a person who tries to say, but that unborn child is just simply a part of a woman's body, I think there's no difference in terms of development, embryo with this egg sitting on a lupin plant versus an undeveloped fertilized egg inside a mother's womb. No matter how much mom may struggle and not want to be pregnant and all of that, it's apples to apples. It's just the location is, is different. So I want to challenge you if you, you think that abortion is okay. And I want to challenge you that there's some other evidence, not even just Bible, common sense logic that says, yeah, we recognize life <laughs> in legal systems apart from that. Now, for those of you that have struggled and have had abortions, and 
I don't know of much deeper pain for a woman who's gone through that because everything in a woman's body is to produce life, both physically and emotionally and mentally. Women will give their lives for their babies. And when that finally hits you later on, when you've gone through that, the guilt and the shame is just crushing and wounded. I want you to know that you find forgiveness and you find hope and that Jesus loves you still, even in the aftermath of that. In fact, he loves you tremendously. Do you remember the story of Gideon when he saw the angel of the Lord and God, and he thought he was a dead man because of his sin and the holiness of God? And he realized that, that God blessed him, and he makes this altar, and he worships God, and he declares it to be God is peace. I want you and it doesn't happen just in one moment, but there's a process and a life of that, of working through those things. If that's been you, or, or men, if that's been you, and you feel the guilt of pushing a girlfriend or your wife or something down that road, the way to deal with it is not to ignore it, not to act like it didn't happen, but it's the opposite. It's to think through and prayerfully accept the realities of the life that's in there that was taken. And you need to come to that place as you work through that and find forgiveness through Jesus that he took your punishment that you deserved and put it from you to him. That you can be at that same place just like Gideon when he made that altar and worshiped God, that God is peace. What he was saying is, is that God accepts me. Even with all of my sin and all I've done wrong, God is peace at peace with me. God is blessed me and God gives me joy in the middle of all of the wrongs that I've done. And I want to encourage you that in those moments and, and when those times of remembrances of the pain and the guilt creep back in, those are the times that you need to remember and go back and say, but God is my peace. Jesus died and he paid for me, for my sins, and I'm forgiven. And find your hope in that and also in the fact that you will see your child one day in heaven as you know Jesus is Lord of your life. Those children are precious in the eyes of God. And uh, we could talk more about what the Bible has to say about that in the unborn, but I want to challenge you. Selfishness, when it rains in our heart, will lead us down that road. And that's what the statistics of the Guttmacher Institute showed us. And I just read you something thousands of years older that says that's a reality. Third thing I want you to realize, and I know that's a heavy one, guys, and we don't often touch that subject, but it's something we cannot neglect as a church. And when there's a passage that talks about the taking of innocent life, we can't go past that. Third thing I want you to realize, not only do you follow your own sinful heart and your own selfish heart, but when you do, it makes a mess and creates drama and dysfunction in your family, and it adds to it. Look at what chapter 9 is. Judges is all about family dysfunction and a mess. And in chapter 9, verse 22, the Bible says this, Abimelech ruled over Israel for three years. And then God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech, sent a demon between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. And that the violence done to the 70 sons of, of Jeroboam might come, and that their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. There is a prophecy that I didn't mention here that Jotham, the younger son, that proclaims, he 
proclaims a prophecy, a curse that says fire will come out from Abimelech to Shechem and Shechem to Abimelech. In other words, there's going to be fight, drama, uh, all kinds of stuff between the two. And God makes good on it. And now we see this guy who's so selfish in his heart and doing what he's doing, leading three years, and the people of Shechem finally got tired of it, and they began to cast their lot. And I didn't take time to read it. You can read the story of this other guy. And there becomes infighting and all kinds of stuff going on. And next thing we know, there's war, and the men of, of Shechem are going out after uh, Abimelech in war, and he wins and defeats them, and then he comes into the city and burns the whole city and destroys them and goes on, and it's just... It's a complete, utter disaster. You see, at the heart, when you, when you have selfishness in your heart and your soul, just like what James 3 said a minute ago, it creates all kinds of dysfunction in your life. That never stays just with you. That spills over to family. That means when that selfishness is down in your soul, it's going to come out and it's that poison and that bitterness and that vile is going to come out on the people around you. And it's going to create chaos and conflict and all kinds of stuff with them. Dysfunction. And it all really, peel it back, it all comes back to not having Jesus as your king and instead of living life where you want it, the way you want it, how you want it, when you want it, and you reserve the right to change the rules of whatever you want. And you live every moment in the day for you. Or... Maybe not every moment, maybe just a quarter of the moments. Doesn't take a lot to mess up a relationship, does it? Just living selfishly in the middle of that creates such dysfunction that James talked about. And everyone doing what they want to do, and which is right in their own eyes, chaos. If I were a coach, a football coach, and I told the, the kids to go out and Oh, you guys have watched some teams play. Why don't you just go out and play however you think is best and however you want to? How well is that team going to play? They're going to get frustrated with each other pretty soon. You didn't throw me the ball. Well, I didn't want to throw you the ball. I wanted to keep the ball. I wanted to do this. I thought this was better. Complete chaos. Why? Because everybody would be doing what they thought was right and best. You see, God's holding the mirror up to us, guys. We're the ones that do what we think is right and best. And it makes a mess in our lives because we're not playing by His rule book. We're not playing under His relationship with Jesus as Lord and with Jesus as our King. And it creates all that mess in our lives. John, are you saying that if I follow Jesus and if I surrender my life to Him like Thomas did, that that guarantees that I'll never have family drama or dysfunction? No, I'm not saying that at all. Some Christians want to live that way, and you can't. You can only plastic coat that image so long, and it'll come off. But I am saying this. You will not be contributing to the drama in your life, in your family, and instead you'll actually be a force for good and healing and correction rather than joining the mess and adding to it and catalyzing it and making it even worse. Because you will be taking your cues from God and following Him as King of your life. And as what God will be doing will be using you to help bring peace and solution and resolution in the middle of the world around you. Some of you know what it's like to grow up in a home where Jesus is not King. And you know the dysfunction and the drama that I talk about. The only way that we can remotely work, live in a way that, that is healthy and helpful and it's some peace is when we serve Jesus 
And he's really the one that's in charge in our marriages, in our homes, in our families. Doesn't it, we will not have a perfect life for sure because we're still sinners and we will mess up. But our lives will be way different and it won't look anything like this in the process. So what's our hope in the middle of this? Ultimately, it's only Jesus. Because what happens is, in the middle of this dysfunction, I don't want to blow by it, there becomes even supernatural involvement, a demon. God sends a demon out, and just as we read in James, when there's selfishness, there's demonic influence in our minds. You now have, have a supernatural power in between all of that conflict when you're really not serving with Jesus as king, and it's throwing chaos behind the scenes, and you don't even know about it. And ultimately, God will judge all of that. In the end, we see that Abimelech, he goes and tries to fight against a tower, and there is, there is a woman in the tower. She takes probably like a 10-pound stone, the upper grinding stone of grinding grain, and she throws it down on him and hits him in the head. It was a near-fatal wound. And he basically tells the guy carrying his armor, he says, hey, kill me, because I don't want to have a woman kill me. Uh, I want a man to do it. Yeah, absolutely very sexist statement, ladies, if your radar went off there, uh, for sure. And, um, and killed him. But it was only after he had killed all the people um, in Shechem. And so God brought forward the judgment of both directions. Here's what I'm trying to say by this. When you and I live these selfish lives without Jesus as king, we'll absolutely pay for the garbage that we do and the junk that we do. It's not a matter of when, it's a, of if, it's a matter of when. And it may not seem like God did it. When we see the end results of this, it seemed natural. They got into war, the, these guys beat up on these guys, might was right, and then some woman had a really good shot and, and got the guy on the head. And, but in the middle of it, it was all God's judgment. And God will absolutely judge you and hold you accountable for everything that you do. Everything, guys. Romans 2 says this. I'm almost done, so hang in there. I know your bladders are getting full. Hang tight. Romans 2, 6. The Bible says this. He will render to each one according to his works. God will render everyone according to what they've done. To those who by patience and well-seeking... Go down to verse 8. But for those who are self-seeking, here's that selfishness again, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. Well, Sean, I don't know that I'm doing evil. Well, he didn't say just for rapists or murderers. Go back. What's evil? For the, it's those who seek self selfishness and don't obey and do what God says. God says you're going to have tremendous trouble in this life, tribulation in this life, and ultimately we know the rest of the Bible, eternal judgment from God when you don't finally come to realize that you're a sinner before a holy God and are accountable for all of the stuff in your life. See, we tend to, when we have relational difficulties, we blame and put everything on the other person, and we ignore our stuff. And God says, yeah, I see what they've done, and they're accountable for that. But you're accountable for your stuff. See, our only hope ultimately, guys, is, is to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, to be forgiven of all of that junk. 
What God is trying to prove to us in Judges is that we are an absolute mess apart from God in our life. Our families would all be a complete dysfunction. We would end up in the evening news. We will end up in jail ourselves and all kinds of stuff were it not for Jesus. And that we each deeply need His saving grace in our life. We each deeply need to turn our life and do just what Thomas said. You, Jesus, are my Lord and my God. You died for me. Now I realize that the hunger that I have in my heart is for you. Would you forgive me and save me and be Lord of my life? In those moments, God forgives our sin and He starts us in a new path and changing us. And then He calls us more and more and following Him and surrendering Him to fully as Lord of our lives. And when we live that way, the guilt and the shame are gone. When we live that way, God changes us and He uses us for good in the life around us. So, you know, looking at this picture that Judges is painting, do we want guilt and destruction and dysfunction at our hands and punishment and separation from God? Or do we want forgiveness and joy and peace and relationships that begin to honor God and relationships that become increasingly healthy? I don't know about you, but I want the other. It's, it's an either or. People say, well, I really don't want to be for Jesus because I don't want to be one of those people and make it political or whatever. So be it. But it's clear to me, I want this one all day long. So I want to challenge you this morning, guys, at two or three levels as our team comes on up here. Do you know Jesus is your king? Have you surrendered your life to him as Lord of your life? Not just, oh, I believe in Jesus, but have you in that moment come to that reality, put your fingers into his hands for, him to, for you to say, you are my Lord, you are in charge of me. You're what I need. You're what I need to make me feel complete, to make me whole, to bring peace into my life. I need nothing else. Maybe you're in a situation where you haven't lived with Jesus as your king and you have committed yourself to a loser. I think the thing you need to do is to back out of that relationship, confess to God and say, God, I have so blown this one. Forgive me. I didn't realize what I was doing and get that one squared away. Maybe you're pursuing, you just subtly left that off and not consciously living your life for Jesus as King. Maybe you've begun to see some evidence with just some dysfunction in your life and whatever you're wrestling with, the anger and all of the junk. You need to go back and say, hmm, maybe there's selfishness in this heart that I have not dealt with. God, would you help me? I want you to be in charge. I want to live for you, not for me. I want to live for you. So this moment is for you to confess that to him, make a commitment to make right whatever you've done and messed up other relationships to go straighten those things out. But whatever God has spoken in your heart this morning, I want you to respond to him. And if there's sin in your life in the background that you've struggled and you're gripped by guilt and shame and the privacy... I want to encourage you to talk to somebody in the middle of that. Talk to a friend, somebody that you can trust. If you don't have anybody, I'd be glad to talk with you. But somebody to help just love you and help you to begin to experience and peel back what you need to, to experience the joy and the grace of God in your life. But whatever God has spoken in your heart this morning, I want you to respond to Him today. So won't you stand as we sing?
Thanks for listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Visit us on Sundays at 10 a.m. or online at riveralbany.com.